BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. And this week, we are doing another up-to-date episode. Welcome back, Adam. It's great to be here, Indre. That's Adam Bristol, our up-to-date correspondent. Indeed. Looking forward to it. Lots going on in the world of science and technology. And it's been a while since we've done one of these. So um, I'm excited. Oh, me too. All right. So why don't you just jump right in? All right. Well, I want to talk to you about one paper that I thought was really fascinating, an update on something we've talked about in a prior episode. And then last one that I'd say is um, kind of science adjacent that kind of impacts our daily life. Okay. All right. So the first one is a paper that came out recently in one of the journals of the American Chemical Society, a journal called Nano. And the title is Surface Topography Adaptive Robotic Superstructures for Biofilm Removal and Pathogen Pathogen Detection on Human Teeth. And the authors here are Min Jun Oh and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania, with the senior authors being Edward Steger and Hyun Koo, both of whom head the biofilm research lab there. So I thought it was interesting because when you think about tooth decay and oral health more broadly, we think of plaque, right? The stuff we scrape off our teeth. The sugar bugs, as we tell our kids. Yeah, as we call our kids, the sugar bugs, exactly. And those are biofilms, right? They're populations of microbial cells like bacteria and fungi that become enmeshed in an extracellular matrix that then is firmly attached to the surface Hmm. of our teeth. Now, biofilms on teeth and in other places are really hard to clean, right? Think of the scraping that your dental hygienist does at your semi-annual cleaning, and they can lead to infections and chronic health problems. So Mm. it'd be much, it would be, it'd be great to find some novel way of um, addressing biofilms. One thing that makes biofilms on teeth so challenging is that the teeth themselves are kind of unusual shape. They're oddly shaped. They have ridges crevices on and between teeth that makes it even more challenging to treat. Mm -hmm. So in this paper, the authors took a nanotechnology approach and they engineered a system for controlling essentially the aggregation and movement of iron nanoparticles using programmable magnets Hmm. to create adaptable 
bristle and floss-like structures to clean teeth and remove the biofilms. So this was just a proof of concept paper only, but I found it fascinating. So, so like, wait, wait, wait. So they basically created toothbrushes? No, no, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> they have the they have the actions of toothbrushes, but okay. they're actually enhanced toothbrushes. Okay. And I'll tell you why. So the authors start with an aqueous bath, and in t that also contains iron nanoparticles at a known concentration. Okay. And on either end of this bath, on either side, they can place small electromagnets. So when they energize one of the magnets, then the iron nanoparticles naturally congregate in a clump on that side of the bath. Sure. Right? So nothing new here. But as they energize the opposite side magnet simultaneously, now these iron nanoparticles self-assemble into bristle-like structures extending across the bath. Mm, yeah, you can kind of see that if you if you play with like little iron filings and you have them two magnets, they kind of make these yeah. like uh, little lines, yeah. right? When I started reading it, I was, couldn't help but think about that children's toy. It's called like Wooly Willy, or what's the thing where you, you put the beard on the guy with your little, the you have a magnet on a wand and you sort of move it around and the iron filings basically yeah. congregate. Yes, sure. I mean, so I don't know about Willy, but, but something like that. Yeah. It's, it's something like that. But so anyways, what the authors found, so they took it obviously, you know, much further than that. They found that if they varied the concentration of the iron nanoparticles, the strength of the magnetic fields, the position of the magnets relative to each other, and, and a variety of other factors, that they could control the shape that forms, like the bristle length and the movement of the iron nanoparticle bristles. They could, they could create sweeping movements, almost like a toothbrush, mm. right? So there was a dynamic control of the nanoparticle structures with these magnets. And what's cool too, is that the bristles could conform to the topography of the object on which they were in contact. So they were kind of like shapeshifters, right? They could get into the little nooks and the crannies. Mm -hmm. The authors called these surface topography adaptive robotic superstructures or stars. So the, these are these are robot toothbrushes. Pretty much. I mean, what's your definition of a robot, right? I mean, these are iron, these are particles. I mean, that are a self-propelling, self yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. But what's cool is that they found that these little bristles, right, these iron, these superstructures that are formed by the, the kind of congregation in the uh, of the iron nanoparticles could generate shear stresses as they moved in the mm. range of about 60 pascals, which exceeds the value needed for biofilm removal. Mm. So to test this, they used experimental objects like they use a 3D printed square, they use 3D printed and actual human teeth samples. Mm. They coated with them with saliva, and then they cultured known biofilm generating bacteria on them. Mm. In this case, Streptococcus mutans, which the authors claims creates one of the stickiest, most recalci recalcitrant biofilms. So in the right medium, it only took about 43 hours for the biofilm to form, right? So this is creating the model, mm. right? You got to get biofilms to form on your little experimental apparatus. It only took 43 hours to that's, do that. That's a long time to be brushing your nasty. teeth. No, 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 no. No, we haven't gotten to the brushing yet. Oh, okay. What I'm saying is they took teeth, like got you know, it. donated I see, teeth, I see, I see. and we have to form biofilm on them to wipe oh, it off. Oh, oh, oh. So, so it took right. 43 okay. hours to form the biofilm. I got it. Now they tested various bristle movement patterns on those now formed biofilms, and they found that they could effectively remove the biofilm with the magnet controlled bristle movements when it was done in a 1% hydrogen peroxide solution. So it wasn't clear to me from the method just how long it took to, to, to do the sweeping, but it was at least 10 minutes. Okay. And the hydrogen peroxide alone 
at 1% didn't remove the biofilms, right? Oh, you okay. might say, is that just yeah. used as a cleaning? But at a 1% concentration, that's actually pretty low. Okay. Containing that, a lot of the over-the-counter teeth whitening solutions usually contain 3% hydrogen oh, okay. peroxide. So you could, you, I see, okay, so you could. Right. So it's just that concentration doesn't account for their ability to remove the biofilm. Sure. But the hydrogen peroxide is actually a really important component here. Because the iron nanoparticles are capable more of just the physical abrasive abrasive removal of the biofilms. Hmm. It turns out that the iron oxide used in the solution, which is F3, Fe304, reacts with hydrogen peroxide to generate free radicals, like hmm. a hydroxyl radical OH, which is known to be antimicrobial. Hmm. So the iron nanoparticles in this STARS platform is really a dual mechanochemical approach, hmm. right, to, to biofilm removal. So this would be better than just a toothbrush, right? It'd be, it'd be as if you had an antimicrobial toothbrush bristles Got it. along with the sort of force of your, of your brushing. So lastly, I just want to throw this in as an additional application. The authors found that after getting rid of the biofilm removal, after getting rid of the biofilm, if they just de-energize the magnets, the iron nanoparticles fell away, right? Because they're no mm -hmm. longer magnetized. They found that they could collect those nanoparticles, do biomarker analysis, and they could identify the components of the biofilm. So there's what are the bugs. Mm. So this has potential possibility for diagnostic uses too. Wow. Right? Yeah, so, it's like you spit out your filings and then your, uh, yeah. <laughs> your dentist figures yeah. out, you know. You know, so my, my thinking was, you know, where does this go from here? This was clearly yeah. a proof of concept sure. type of paper. And the idea of nanoparticles for oral health isn't that crazy, of course. We have a number of substances that are already being used commonly, like uh, hydroxyapatite, which is a tooth coating, and titanium dioxide, which is used as an intense white pigment, hmm. intense white pigment for whitening. So these are commonly used. But my big question when reading the paper was if they actually plan to treat human teeth in situ, right, while they're still in our mouths, mm -hmm. they'll need to design a setup that works as a some sort of mouthpiece that contains the iron nanoparticle solution with the dilute hydrogen peroxide and then position the two magnets on either side of the teeth. Because in the paper, the bath was just this little small contained, you know, mm -hmm. bath. It was just a small little rectangle which was useful for an experimental system, but it, it's that's really not what would require for real-world application. But if it takes, you know, like 24 hours, in this case, 43 hours for the bacterium to form, you know, and my dentist always tells me that, you know, you can get a cavity in 24 hours. Like, do you think that there's ever, a, a, you know, a way that this would replace toothbrushing? I don't think it would be replace toothbrushing. I mean, I could see it for your, the types of work that your dental hygienist already does, the scraping at your semi-annual mm. every six months. Oh, I see. This would be like, let's get rid of the buildup of plaque. Oh, you know, instead of like six scraping so with you, that tool. Exactly. Oh. So they basically put it on your, I could see some appliance that you basically put on in the dentist's office. Hey, I'll be back in 10 minutes. Yeah, I mean, while well, you watch a video works, and right? through your VR goggles. Yeah, they could basically... Yeah. Put your teeth in almost like a mouthpiece thing. Right. Put it up in there and then have these something that would basically have magnets energizing in the right pattern yeah. on either side and let the iron nanoparticles do the work. Okay. Versus the, the gentle hygienist. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely feel like I, I screwed you up with the 43 hour thing. I was just I was amazed to find that it only took 43 hours when they're getting their experimental system up. Yeah, no, 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 I, I, I see what you're saying, you're saying. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because I, yeah, I've been told that like, yeah, it only, it, 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 after a day, you can, you can actually have a buildup of, uh, yeah, for sure. Plaque in your teeth. Okay.
this is an awesome videos. They show you all, they show it working. So I'll throw some links on the Patreon page because it's okay. really kind of cool to see these little iron nanoparticles in action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack. And save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses. Plus, updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? One of the articles that caught my eye, and I think a lot of other science journalists and people just interested in science in, in general, was that there seems to have finally have been a positive trial involving an Alzheimer's drug that works on amyloid. Um, so this has been, this is kind of like one of the big disappointments in neurology was that, you know, several decades ago, this this hypothesis that at least one of the um, pathologies related to Alzheimer's disease is caused by a buildup of, of uh, amyloid. And, and so if we could just get rid of it, then we could alleviate or possibly even cure the disease. Um, but it hasn't. I mean, there have been failure after failure after failure when it comes to drugs that, you know, attempt to do this. Um, and a lot of people have, have started to just say, like, we need just to give up this whole endeavor and, and leave this hypothesis behind. And in fact, this drug, lecanemab, uh, came out of a discovery of a mutation uh, described in a Swedish population over 20 years ago that potentially affects the protofibril. So these are the pre-plaques, uh, you know, when it comes to amyloid, is the idea is that, it, that, that creates these plaques that are part of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. So if they can target sort of these plaques before they become fully plaqued, <laughs> I don't know how to say that. Um, the, the idea is that they could prevent, uh, you know, this particular pathological uh, part of Alzheimer's. So um, it was developed by a small Swedish company called BioArctic. And uh, later on, uh, that company made a deal with ASI. And so now if you hear about the drug, it's a trial by ASI and uh, the parent company, Biogen. So a couple drug companies, ASI in collaboration with Biogen, uh, started trials in humans, and uh, the phase 2B trial actually was, uh, it looked like the drug was failing. And uh, that was, that those data read out a few years ago, and it just looked like 
not only did the drug not really work ultimately, but the longer the person was on the drug, so going from 12 to 18 months, um, the sort of more, less of an effect you saw. So you saw this, it didn't really make a huge difference. And then it also, you know, didn't get any better if you were on the drug for longer. But this phase three trial showed something a little bit different. Now, there's a caveat here, which is that the full data is going to be released in November. So we don't know exactly what the full data set looks like. But the, the thing that's got everybody excited is that the primary endpoint for the trial was um, called the clinical dementia rating. And what they found was that the patients that were treated by the drug showed a reduced decline, which means basically they didn't decline as quickly as the patients that were on placebo by 27%. So what does this mean? That means patients are still declining, just not as quickly. And it does seem to be a, a significant result, which is good. But whether this actually translates into any kind of real world observations is still unclear because ultimately this effect was on the clinical dementia rating scale, um, which doesn't always translate easily to sort of the things that you kind of need to do in your daily life. Like, you know, does it affect your ability to remember people's names or where you left your keys or what do you need to buy at the grocery store? That it's not clear whether this kind of uh, benefit of the drug actually has an impact in those kinds of real world situations. So, it's exciting in the sense that finally there's a drug that does seem to be going in the right direction. It still has, you know, a lot of, we still have a lot of work to do to figure out whether this is actually a meaningful drug. And finally, of course, it's not anywhere near where we really wish we could, we could be, which is closer to stopping the progression, you know, entirely or even reversing the effects of Alzheimer's. So it's exciting. It's the first positive trial for a disease of aging, uh, like Alzheimer's disease. And the jury is still out whether this uh, statistically significant change, this uh, decrease of 27% in the decline, is going to be clinically significant. That is, is it going to make a difference to the patients? Um, we'll, we'll learn more in November, but it's something to keep your eye out. So what else was on your desk, Adam? Okay. Do you remember back in episode 364, that was in October of 2021. Okay. That we discussed a NASA project known as the Double Asteroid Redirection Test. Or oh, DART. yeah. This is like where they're going to shoot away an asteroid, right? Right, right. This was an air, uh, spacecraft launched into space subsequent to our podcast. It was in November of 2021. It was on a one-way mission to test the viability of kinetic impact onto an asteroid and then redirecting its orbit. Uh -huh. The idea being this is part of the planetary defense possibility, right? Yeah. That is, can NASA navigate a spa spacecraft to hit an asteroid and then deflect it off its course? Yeah. Well, I'm proud. I'm pleased to say, I'm excited to say that on Monday of this week, of the week we're recording this, on September 26, 2022, about 10 months after the launch, the craft successfully smashed into the asteroid known as Dimorphos, and it did so at 14,000 miles per hour, 7 million miles from Earth as planned. Wait, so we kind of avoided the situation and don't look up? Well, remember, this you, the, the Earth was never at risk. Do you <laughs> right. remember this was a dual asteroid? Right. I forgot the name of it now, but remember, this was a unique 
experimental situation. It, it afforded an interesting experimental situation because Dimorphos was an asteroid that was actually orbiting around a very uh, another asteroid. Okay. And that or, uh, asteroid was called Didymos. Right. So the idea is we could we could see these two asteroids, which, by the way, they were never Earthbound. Right. Sure. But the point is they provided this interesting system in which we could basically deflect Dimorphos uh, orbit around its own little Didymos um, satellite. It right. was a satellite around um, um, Didymos. So as a proof of concept to see if that as was a like, proof of concept. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Seems okay. to be the theme of this episode. <laughs> now, the effect is supposed to be small only about a 1% difference in its prior orbit, but that's measurable. So okay. this is going to be, now it's going to take some time on the order of months to gather the data to determine whether, in fact, they were successful in deflecting and altering now hmm. its orbit going around Didymos. Cool. But the fact that we were able to successfully launch, direct, and hit successfully Dimorphos is fascinating. And if you haven't done so already, you have to see the photos and the video of the final moments. Okay. Because just like the moon, the Mars landing we had not long ago, where you just are mouth on the floor at how amazing these 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 uh, images are, the dart the dart um, craft was sending photos back mm. as it was approaching the asteroid, and it got bigger mm. and bigger until you basically saw the uh, surface of this asteroid Whoa. seven million miles away. Wow. And then, Kaboom. Wow. That and, sounds very satisfying. Yeah. And there's actually like the other thing I'll say too is there's an Italian, I saw uh, on social media that there was a asteroid detecting or asteroid surveillance, you know, telescope and they directed it towards the Didymos Dimorphos mm. pairing. And you could actually see the explosion, the, the change in the light and all the debris. And it was like, Whoa, cool. it's really, it's just, it's just fascinating. Amazing. All right, well, I have one more for you, too, and okay. we'll end on this one. And I say this one's kind of science light. It struck me because it impacts my life. You know how much I use YouTube yeah, I to do. fix stuff, to mm -hmm. learn stuff. Um, I call Kill it time. YouTube University. It's fascinating. But I was dismayed to learn that the feedback tools that allow you to presumably shape or sculpt the recommendations and what videos you see and what it serves to you sure. next up and those feedback tools like don't like not interested don't recommend they seem to be much like the closed door button in an <gasps> elevator no. they don't really work no they're just yes. to make you they're like the illusion exactly the control? illusion of control so wow. the mozilla foundation which is a non-profit dedicated to, as they say, quote, shaping the future of the web for the public good, they found that the feedback tools that YouTube uses, well, they don't work that well. So here's what they did. So I was actually impressed with the approach and okay. the quantitative analysis they were able to achieve. Because again, this is all proprietary tools and yeah, data. Yeah, you can't it's just not, ask YouTube. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. So they had 22,722 volunteers. Okay install a browser extension they call regret reporter mm. so they could don't first they could do they would donate their data to mozilla and this data set over time came to be 560 560 million video recommendations yeah people watch, watch a lot of videos on youtube mm -hmm. but what was cool is the regrets reporter allowed uh, mozilla foundation to basically run a controlled experiment mm. 
And this then became the largest experimental audit of YouTube recommendations by an independent research group ever. Hmm. So depending on which experimental group that the volunteer participant was part of, clicking the button on the regrets reporter would send one of several types of feedback to YouTube, like do not recommend channel, dislike, or hmm. what have you. Or it would send no feedback at all if the participant was in the control group. That's important, right? So mm, for those yeah, participants sure. who opted into the research, their extension kept track of which videos that the stop recommending button pressed and what videos YouTube subsequently recommended. But if they if, if they were in the control group and there was no feedback actually going to YouTube, mm. they could have a baseline rate of the similarity and the of the recommend, recommended videos. Oh, wow. Because ultimately what we're looking here is like, if I get a video and you know I watch a lot of bicycle maintenance videos, yeah. if I say all of a sudden I don't want to see those anymore, and then they send me another video to recommend and it is in fact a bicycle maintenance video, there's a high similarity there. Yeah, and, and so the recommendation was poor. And that's the bad recommendation rate. So um, by comparing the results across these different experimental arms against the baseline rate, they were able to measure the effectiveness of YouTube's user controls. Hmm. And to sort of cut to the chase, what they found that even the most effective user controls, those would be saying you don't want any recommendations from a particular channel, or you can remove something from your watch history, hmm. those prevented less than half of the bad recommendations. Hmm. The best they could get was a 43% reduction wow. in recommendations. So... This, for most people, is probably a mere frustration, right? Right, But there are potentially some real-world consequences to this. If there's a problem with disinformation, if there's a yeah. problem with online hate speech or things that are more malevolent, you could imagine people being served things saying, I, I don't want to see that. I don't mm -hmm. want to see that. And yet continually being the recipient of it. Yeah, especially if you have like, you know, a phobia, like arachnophobia or, you right. know, some kind, you've experienced some trauma and you just don't want to deal, you know, don't want to see. Any, and Mozilla Foundation yeah. cites those types yeah, of examples. Sure. Yeah. But it makes me wonder, like, is it just that the YouTube algorithm doesn't want to stop giving you these recommendations because they know that these are the like highly watched videos and you're very likely to see these. So it doesn't really care. Like then it kind of is like the closed door button or is it just that it's not that good? Is it just like, I don't know. Cause it's a different, you know, the similarity rating that Mozilla uses is not going to be necessarily the same as what YouTube uses to decide whether something is, you know, yeah, I mean, reading the Mozilla Foundation's report, they would say it's more the latter, which is they're more interested in engagement right. than they are in, you know, user you, control, yeah, sure. right? And and sort of tailoring it to the user's own interests. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I just saw that again thinking, you know, I, I hit those little not interested buttons all the time. <laughs> and yet, yep. and yet, it's really doing very little. Yeah. Oh, well. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kai Raihala, Mal Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Uh, who also edited this episode. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next time.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.